This is the final word story time. 84? I think 84. Episode 84. My name is Jeff Lemon, and with me this week is not Adam Collins because somehow, miraculously, we have convinced Adam Collins to have a rest, to have not a week off, but a few days off. Uh, and so Daniel Norcross is jumping in in his stead, uh, the, the miracle man who, who does beautiful things. Uh, firstly, Daniel, where are you? You must be very near to Victory Day in World War II uh, slash the English winter. No, we've we passed it. We are now into September of 1945. The war is officially over. But as I wrote extensively... That does not mean that mm. we should all head straight to the nearest available game of cricket here in England because I don't know if you've been bored witless by the Twitter feeds of English types, but it's been snowing because that's what <laughs> happens. We, we had a week of 20 degrees. Yeah. It was all lovely. And then out the players go and it snows. And the wonderful thing about snowing in April is that the county teams are often playing against the university students. And this is their moment for these uh-huh. university students and 19 years old, 20 years old. They get to share mm-hmm. a pitch with Stephen Finn or, you know, some other former great of the Test Match scene. A story they'll be able yep. to tell their, their grandchildren. Did I tell you about the time I dismissed Billy Godelman? That's it. You got it. And mm. instead, what, what they end up doing is being made to field for two days because the county bowlers are going, no way are we bowling in this crap. So, <laughs> so their recollection of it is essentially three jumpers standing at slip, you know, breaking various fingers, just freezing to death. But, uh, you know, the the light is changing, the swifts are soon returning, the buds are now popping out right. on the trees, it's bloody beautiful, It's we're ready, we're in spring, it's all happening, and I'm eating magnolia leaves. So they've, they've actually started, have they? Because I, so I thought that the first, I thought you timed it to the start of the first round. Uh, no, I, I, I timed it um, from the beginning of October to the end of Ma- March, because basically there were six okay. years of the war. But there is a little mm-hmm. bit of, you know, tidying up and negotiating and, you know, corru- getting rid of the prisoners sure. of war that needs to take place in, in September of 45. Vichy France has to be taken You've care got of. It. Yeah. And that's essentially yeah. the first seven days until the county championship season starts. So mm. friendlies are happening and uh, friendlies mm. are effectively, you know, releasing prisoners of war. And then the county championship season starts proper. And, uh, and mm-hmm. that's when, you know, we've, we forget about war. And all our thoughts mm-hmm. turn to the green swords of England, a warm ale, chatting with chums <laughs> that you just don't speak to for six months because you only think of them in terms of cricket. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, is, are there any Nuremberg trials for winter? <laughs> is anyone held responsible down the line? It's a really good question, that. I need to expand on that thought. I wonder who would be responsible mm. for winter. I think possibly my colonial forebears who chose to stay in England rather than just simply mm. move everybody to somewhere warmer. I mean, I've, I've never quite understood why on, on sort of discovering Australia, we didn't just decamp the entire country to Australia mm. and then leave the people we didn't want in Britain and build a wall around it. That would have been altogether much more sensible. So, yeah, I think I'll probably yeah, blame... a much better solution. You know, I'll probably blame William Pitt the Elder. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Well, I, to be honest, I think he's gotten away with things lightly. He really has. He really has. And how, how are you? How are you in Australia now that um, autumn is setting in? 
Yes, well, it's all, it is autumnal in, in Melbourne, but it's still fairly pleasant at the moment. It's early April and, uh, you know, it's cooler but not freezing. So we'll we'll make do with it until the next time. Aussie um, rules, the, Aussie the, rules. The, and, the you're, cri- and you're back from Pakistan as well, both of those things. Yes, home, resting for a bit, but the peregrinations will start again soon enough when the winter, the Australian winter tours commence and then I will escape. Uh, I've seen two winters back to back the last couple of years in lockdown and I have no interest in seeing a third. So uh, wherever I can go, I will go. <laughs> Expect me to be ringing your doorbell. You're always uh, very we, welcome here, Jeffrey. You are always welcome. Thank you. Well, I've, I've heard, you know, the stories of, of what Jeremy Coney has done at, at your house and it's a high bar to, <laughs> to clear, but I'll do my best. <laughs> We have some numbers to do. You've been, you've been working away studiously. I don't know what you've been working on. You don't know what I've been working on, aside from the, the, the starting numbers. Um, but we have, we have some stories to tell, I understand. We, we really do. And there are, some, there are some crackers today, I think. I mean, I'm not going to pretend that I've necessarily got the answers that your nerd pledges are expecting. Mm-hmm. But I have answers. Mm-hmm. And they all have coherence. And there are some stories, Good. there are some that may be rehashed, there are some that your listeners may be familiar with, but I hope there'll be little embellishments that they had not heard before, and little segues, which, as you know, I do like to go on a segue, <laughs> or a tangent. So, yeah, I think there'll be stuff that, that will intrigue your listeners. Well, good. I, th- I think we'd be mildly disappointed if if you did actually have correct answers, rather than just the answers that you thought were the most interesting. Uh, so let's do it. Let's get into it. It is a game. The game is a na 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 nerd pledge. Nerd pledge. It's um, it's 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 a game that we play with the people on the internet. Here's how it works: the the shadowy backers, the financial cabal behind the final word, are a bunch of people online who send us in contributions, but those are not the ones you'd expect. They're not the value of a normal note or a coin. They're a very specific financial value because that number relates to cricket in some way. And we have to work out what it means. For instance, first cab off the rank, Paul Harmer this week with $3.47 AUD. And uh, Daniel, I liked the fact that Paul Harmer had bobbed up purely because Simon Harmer Mm. is back in Test cricket this week as we speak, which is a deeply exciting thing for everybody who's watched him dominate at Essex over the last few years and thought, wouldn't it be nice if Simon Harmer could play for South Africa again? Well, yes, I mean, except from an English point of view, when you're in the depths of despair and you thought, is there a way we could sneak him into our team now? (laughs) Well, there probably was. He just just needed to move a bit faster. Well, there there was. There was a a window of opportunity and um, our Mm. selectors did not take it. So the South Africans, mm. they did the perfectly reasonably. They took back one of their own hostages and they've unleashed him on Bangladesh and he picked up four for, did he not, on, uh, on day two. He did. Having a slightly more tricky time against, uh, against Lytton, Das and co. Uh, in the, second, in the mm. third day. But what a bowler he is. I've seen him take so many wickets at Essex. Anyway, this is not about Simon Harmer. No, no, but I, I thought it was nice to mention. I'm sure, I, I doubt that Paul Harmer has any connection to Simon, but uh, the name made me think of it. And I suppose if you were Simon Harmer and you looked at the way that England had dealt with their spinners in the last couple of years, you'd be um, fairly reluctant to put your hand up to play Test cricket for England because you would be in 19 touring squads. You'd get to play one match at the end of a lost <laughs> series somewhere in about three years' time and you would 
uh, never make a dollar out of the whole enterprise. But uh, right, so Simon Harmer is back. Three four seven is the number we're looking for. Is it three hundred and forty seven? Is it three point four seven? Is it anything in between? I'm not sure. I s- did think for a second. Because sometimes on the show we talk about the highest test scores that nobody's got. Two two twenty nine, I think, is the sorry the lowest test score that nobody's scored yet. I thought, what about the lowest first class scores that nobody's scored? Three forty seven might be a chance. Um, there there are a couple lower. No one's got a three twenty six or a three thirty. And then there's there's a block from three forty six, three forty seven, three forty eight, three forty nine. None of those have been achieved. So three forty seven is one of them, but not the lowest one. Um, but then I thought. It does ring a bell, 347, and I, I had a sneaking suspicion and I went and checked something up and this was right. It's a famous number because it is to this day, Daniel, as I'm sure you will know once I say this, the biggest partnership in Test cricket for the seventh wicket, still, Oh, uh, going all the way back to 1955. Yeah, that does ring a horrific bell. Yeah, the seventh highest seventh wicket partnership of 347. Marvellous. Mm-hmm. So... It's uh, Dennis Atkinson yeah. and uh, a fellow, so, uh, the, the names are beautiful here, Dennis Santaval Atkinson and the wicketkeeper Cyril Claremont de Pisa, who was obviously nicknamed the Leaning Tower de Pisa, who for West Indies made uh, 347 together all the way back when. But I thought, I, I have told this story to some extent on the show before, it was a, a long time ago, but I thought it was interesting to come back to this this week this may seem uh, a, like a, a bit of circumlocution, but we'll get there eventually. Because this week, Joshua De Silva for the West Indies made a century, and there was a, a to-do about that, or you know, a week ago, whenever it was, about him being the, the first white player for the West Indies in a long time. And, um, and people keep saying he's the first white player since Brendan Nash, who played between 2008 and 2011, but... Uh, Brendan Nash was not a white player. He, people just assumed that he was because he was born in Perth, grew up in Queensland. Uh, he's got fair skin. He debuted in Dunedin. And, and the, you know, the assumption was they've picked this guy out of Australian domestic cricket and uh, he's being allowed to qualify because he was born in Jamaica. Um, but he was born in Jamaica because his parents are Jamaican. Yeah. <laughs> they moved to Australia. Just, well, he, wasn't, no, he was actually born in Australia, but they moved just before he was born. Conceived, so conceived in wasn't Jamaica. Ju- Probably yes, yes. Made in made in Jamaica uh, and parented by Jamaicans, uh, who just didn't look the way that people assumed that people should look if they were people of colour from Jamaica, which they are. So they moved over. His dad, Paul Nash, was an Olympic swimmer for Jamaica in 1968. He he won the coveted Jamaican Sportsperson of the Year award. I found out in 1968. Uh, his his mother Andrea is Jamaican. So. Brendan Nash was not a white player, which takes you back to 1972-3 when they had a guy called Jeff Greenwich, who was not just Gordon Greenwich pretending to be someone else for a minute, <laughs> who didn't last very long because he went on a rebel tour to apartheid Zimbabwe, which was um, probably not a popular move in the Caribbean at the time. Uh, anyway. Oh, that was the tour sort of that uh, Gary Sobers went on, wasn't it? And uh, it kicked up ah. a bit of a stink, the, uh, the Rhodesia mm. tour. Yeah. Yep. Towards the very yep. end, of his, well, it, end of his career, yeah. It didn't uh, didn't go too well, play too well for Jeff Greenwich um, anyway. But So I, I was thinking of all of this because Dennis Atkinson was one of the last white captains of West Indies. He filled in for a while in the 50s for Jeff Stolmeyer and then Jerry Alexander came after 
um, Stolmeyer. He was the last white captain man, and it became this big point of contention around 1960 um, when CLR James set up a newspaper and had thundering editorials every day about how the uh, the slave-owning mentality had to be dropped and the, the West Indies cricket board had to get rid of this uh, very clearly absurd thing of picking whichever random white guy they could find to captain the team because, you know, they thought that obviously you couldn't give the captaincy of the team to a black player, heavens, heavens above. No. So... George Headley captained West Indies for one test in the 40s, but that was kind of a, you know, that was a bit of a, a for show only. They let him do it for, you know, in a shared captaincy sort of arrangement. And Frank Worrell became the first long-term black captain of West Indies in 1960, and they have not looked back since. So all of those things, I don't know, they were all in my mind, Daniel, and, Ooh, and I thought, just, well... Uh, just, be- yeah. just before you move on from that, I, d- I wanted to give a plug mm. to, to what is, I think, one of the best cricket books I've read in a long time, notwithstanding uh, the, mm. those that you and, and, and others have written, called Who Only Cricket Know, which is the story mm. of the 1953-54 England tour to the West Indies, which was marred mm-hmm. by exactly these issues. Because, of course, there were plenty of players of colour on the side, but they had a white captain, Jeff Stolmeyer, as you mentioned. There'd been issues with Goddard as well, a previous captain. And the whole tour is one of the most rancorous, believed to be up there with the Bodyline Tour yeah. for rancour and horror. And the, all those issues really come to the fore. You find that a lot of the white guys in a lot of the island nations were cheering on the English because mm. some of these countries were gaining independence at the time. It's a great book, Who Only Cricket Know, by David Woodhouse. I'm really mm. sorry I've broken your train of thought, but it's a great book. No, not at all. We, we, um, we, we should have these digressions because we can. Nobody can tell us what to do. Uh, but I did want to talk about the partnership because it is wild, um, even if I have talked about it before. You go back to Bridgetown, Barbados, 1955. Dennis Atkinson's a, an all-rounder, you know, bowls a bit, bats a bit bits and pieces, that kind of thing. They're up against a very good Australian team. Neil Harvey's there, Keith Miller's there, Richie Benno, Colin McDonald. The Australians make 668 in the first innings. Uh, Nasty. <laughs> Ray Lindwell makes one of his two test centuries. Uh, they bat for just short of three, 236 overs. Oh. The Australians. Horrible, isn't it? Isn't it foul? Um, Who would play cricket? Yeah. Uh, and then they get Gary Sobers out. They get... The W's, uh, Weeks, Worrell, Walcott out, and they have the West Indies six down for 147. And this is a six-day test match, bear in mind. So they've made 600 in the first innings, six for 147. West Indies sunk, obviously, and then Mm. Atkinson and DePisa come together and they make this 347. They get West Indies to 510, meaning they save the follow-on miraculously. The Australians have to bat again. They make 249, they set 408. There's no chance to chase that. There's not enough time. But the West Indies are in trouble again. They're six down for 207. And who should be there to bat out a draw? Atkinson and DePisa. Do it again. They do it once, they do it twice. They saved the match over six days when the Aussies made over 600 in the first innings. It is an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, performance and it has stood the test of time to this day. I think... Uh, you'll find also that there were six-day tests, but there were six days of five hours each because that was the way mm. test matches in the West Indies were constructed in those days in that 53-4 okay. tour that England went on. Uh, so you ended up with basically the same amount of time, but obviously they bowled right. their overs more quickly. Um, so it's a, mm-hmm. you know, it's, that's why you can get that many more runs or what have you. But yes, there were six days of five hours each, which I presume is because they were mm. taking place... 
they tended to take place around the equinox and these are tropical conditions anyway so the sun would mm. you know go down really quickly and nobody wants to play cricket before 11 o'clock so if you're going to start at 11 no. o'clock you've got to finish early but you've just got to play more days yeah, I mean, it's inhumane to start before 11 <laughs> o'clock, frankly. Isn't um, it? And, and no floodlights, and you're right that in close to the equator, the sun just drops. Uh, there's, no, there's no dusk. It just goes straight down. So I thought that might be the 347 for Paul Harmer. It could be that partnership. If it isn't, Paul, frankly, it should be that partnership <laughs> because what a partnership it was. But you can let me know, Paul. You can drop us a message or, or go to the Nerd Pledge channel on the Discord page, on the chat page, um, and throw in some more hints and... We'll have to do a big revisit show in the next couple of weeks when Adam's back on deck. First number for you, Daniel, is this. It comes from another Daniel. It is $2.70 in AUD. Daniel O'Connell is the man in question, not a pub in Carlton, uh, <laughs> but a nerd pledger on this show. He says, for a clue, I am reminded of my pledge every time a dusty old bastard is announced but not because the player in question is a dusty old bastard himself. If you uh, have not listened to the show before, a dusty old bastard is a long-past cricketer who played a very small amount of international cricket who we've never heard of before and we would like to know more about. Yeah, now this is a complicated one, isn't it? Because it's Mm. not a dusty old bastard, but one he's reminded of him when the dusty old bastard Mm. theme tune comes out, the one and only, by Chesney Hawks. So... Mm. My first thinking is 270s. There can't have been too many 270s in Test cricket. There's the very famous one, the one that mm-hmm. hurts my eyes to look at. Uh, I've been made to look at it because I'm doing this podcast mm-hmm. today. It's one of my least favourite Test matches. It's one of the most famous <laughs> Test matches. It's one of my least favourite <laughs> Test matches because it was the third Test match in the 36-37 series in which uh-huh. quizzling traitor Gubby Allen who was desperately keen to keep good relations with Australia for no apparent reason, uh, decided to (laughs) throw the series the only time it's ever been done before from a 2-0 lead. And he got this 2-0 lead, I think, by accident. Some some of the players were Mm -hmm. actually sort of just playing well, and uh, Gubby had forgotten to tell them what the script was. And then, Mm -hmm. lo and behold, we get into the third test, and Gubby's got to find a way of losing this game, and his bowlers Mm -hmm. are not helping him out again. because I, I will interject at this point to to remind people that in the first two test matches, Don Bradman had picked Frank Ward uh, to bowl leg spin instead of Clary Grimmett, so that contributed greatly to England being two 0 up. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, there was there were both of them. It seems to me both these captains were doing their absolute best to scupper mm. their team's chances. But mm. in the in this third test, it's it's so famous. But it, as I say, it pains my eyes. Australia two hundred for nine declared, declaring because. A sticky dog has arrived. Oh, my God, we love a sticky dog. I'd love to see Mm. sticky dogs now. Why don't we have enough sticky dogs? Mm -hmm. England go into bat on the sticky dog. They're in all sorts of bother. They're 76 for nine. They declare as well because it's still sticky. If anything, it's stickier. (laughs) So you've got this this wonderful game of cat and mouse in which Bradman, seeing the dangers, in other words, wanting to protect his average, and he hadn't started the series that Uh well, reverses the batting order and scores one of the most famous... Well, it's one of the most famous innings in cricket history. And it's another one of those huge triple hundred partnerships just off the back of what you were talking about there. A partnership of 346 between the Don and his, well, his his avowed foe, uh, Jack Fingleton. Who knows if they spoke mm. between overs? I'm doubting it strongly. 
Uh, turns the game round. Australia make 564. Bundle an exhausted, weary and annoyed England out for 323 in the second innings, being set an impossible target of 700-odd, 689 to win. Um, and... The rest is history. England capitulate. Australia win 3-2. The only time it's ever been done in the Ashes. Could it be that 270? Well, none of it fits with the clue. Um, similarly, yep. one of the only other, there have been three Test Match 270s. George Headley was the first yep. with an unbeaten yep. 270. And uh, the other famous 270, I guess, is Rahul Dravid, who scored 270 against Pakistan. Famous Test Match. I mean, we get so few of those anymore. What a shame it is when Pakistan... Made two two four and two four five, and in between, India, despite Virendra Sehwag being bowled first ball for a duck, obviously for a duck. Uh, how could he be bowled first ball without getting a duck? <laughs> first ball of the innings, uh, caught by Yazir Hamid of the bowling of Shahbaktar, despite Sachin Tendulkar being got for a one for just one, also by Shahbaktar. Shoab limps off, mm. having taken three for forty seven. And Rahul Dravid gets into his work with a quite majestic 270 from 495 balls in 12 hours and 20 minutes. That's proper wall-like mm. behaviour, isn't it? But, you know, mm. nothing's working with the clue, annoyingly. No. Well, the, on the only thing you could interpret is to say that Bradman's 270. So the, if the theme song that reminds Daniel of... His person is the one and only. Yeah, Bradman's two seventy is the one and only time that a team turned around a two nil lead to win. It could games. be that, and indeed, in that series, there's a great Stan Worthington. I don't know if you've mentioned him on Story Time yet, but Stan Worthington, no, after Rory so. Burns was bowled first ball for a duck, Stan Worthington, it turns out, is the I think the only other man to have been got out to the first ball of the Ashes, and it was in the thirty six thirty seven Ashes. There's footage of it. Huh. And it is, if you thought Rory Burns' shot was bad, check out Stan Worthington's. Because <laughs> he, he goes to pull a ball down the leg side and offers a really limp catch of a thick edge, a thick leading edge to sort of mid-wicket. It's abysmal. Yeah. So I thought, yeah. could it be that? But do you know what? I still what? think getting bold leg stump is worse. <laughs> well, <laughs> promise me you... It's more embarrassing. At least Mitchell Stark bowled a straight ball at some pace. The yep. ball that got out Stan True. Worthington, you or I, would have been able to hit into the crowd. It was a long hop. First ball of the ashes and he gets out to it. Yeah. So I thought, that, that could be a, like a, a one and only, but it's not an only because mm -hmm. of Rory Burns. Mm. So then I, I mm. went back to One Cat Wonders and I checked out okay. the numbers 270, cap numbers. And I'm, I'm going to be fairly brief with this because you already know about the great Father Marriott. Mm -hmm. What a man he was. You talked about him before. Incidentally, he was the master of cricket at my school. Not when I was there. Back in the 1920s, right. Dulwich College, he, uh, mm. he, he tutored Trevor Bailey, among other people, who would go on to become a TMS summariser. He's the man who has the best average in, uh, in, in test cricket for a bowler. An average, he took 11 wickets in his only test match. He had an extraordinary life. He was... Uh, uh, he, he was mm. in the wars in the First World War. He fought at the Somme. He fell on some frozen duck crates, which meant that he was invalided out for a while. I imagine that was a pretty handy fall to have when you're mm. at the Somme. He then got shell-shocked. What, what is a frozen duck crate? I don't really know. I'm not quite sure what a duck oh, crate no, is. Oh, no, no. They, they, they must mean duck boards. They used to, duck boards were what they called oh. the wooden slats they used to lay down at the bottom of the trench. That could well be it. 
He was called Father Marriott because he was at Cambridge University after the war. He did his degree in, in mm. two years because they counted war service as one year of study, which is interesting. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, quite wise. Okay. And he had a great career uh, playing and tutoring at Dulwich College and playing for Kent at the same time. He's a, a leg spinner, very high action. But he didn't get brought into the test team until 1933, at the age of 37, as a replacement for Headley Verity. He probably took 11 wickets for zip at an average of 8.72, therefore has mm. the best average of anybody who's got over 10 wickets in test cricket, never played again. He's a one and only. He's number 270. Mm -hmm. But I'm sorry I keep digressing here. I've discounted him because I think you've spent so much time with Father Marriott, and I know Colo loves mm. Father Marriott because of the, mm. the greatness of the story and the fact that he's called Father Marriott not because he's actually yes. a priest but because he does happen to be old at university. Yeah, well, Adam spent a lot of time during the Boxing Day test last year on commentary talking about Scott Boland versus Father Marriott in terms of whose career average. For, for a while there, Boland was below Marriott. I think he's crept above him just at the end. Yeah, so that's where that came in. So I've discarded it even though it would work because he wasn't a dusty old bastard. In a way, he was. In mm. a way, he's not. He was a one-cat wonder, mm -hmm. so he could be a one and only. But I think, because I see the clue in Aussie dollars, I feel this is an Australian we're looking for. So I went in search of Aussie cat number 270, and I think I might have my man. It is a man that I'm not sure you'll know much about. I certainly knew nothing about. Ashley Woodcock is his name. And mm -hmm. why I like him for this is that he's not just any old one-cat wonder. He played one test match against New Zealand in 74. He played one yeah. ODI against New Zealand and smashed 50 odd, 53 and 66 balls. Never played again. I mean, in those days, that was basically, yeah. you know, Kyron Pollard. That was Chris Gale. Chris Gale, yeah. Opening batter, but also, and this really is where it takes the biscuit, he played in one game against the rest of the world. So... That used to be, and that used to be a test cap. So he had a test cap before he uh -huh. before he got his test cap, but then he had the test uh -huh. cap rescinded, and then got a test cap. Right <laughs> now, the rest of the World Series. I'm not going to take too long on this, but just briefly, the yeah. rest of the World Series in '71 too. If you haven't done a story time on it, you could do an entire story time on it. Yeah, he features in the fifth and final now unofficial test match which the rest of the world go on to win he only scored five and 16 he was lbw to tony Gregg in the first innings caught by bob taylor off the bowling of sobers in the second innings in that series there was one point where the rest of the world at melbourne picked four spinners four spinners and i think peter mm. pollock and bear in mind that they were playing this because south africa were being boycotted there was peter pollock playing there was graham pollock playing there was South Africans, obviously. There was Tony Gregg, mm. who was pretty South African, albeit an English South mm. African. It's an astounding series. It also contains... Uh, he, he barely played, but obviously one of my favourite cricketers, the man who, who gave John Arlott his finest line on commentary, Bob Cunis, whom he described, Cunis, C-U-N-I-S, who Arlott famously described after lunch, after he'd had a couple of bottles, he goes, here comes Cunis. Funny name, Cunis. Neither one thing nor the other. <laughs> Which um, is a great way of telling the smuttiest joke you possibly can on national radio at 1.45. Um, but it also featured Norman Gifford, a very brief 
digression on Norman Gifford. He was a left-arm spinner in England in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Made his test debut in 1964. And you know, uh-huh. he made his ODI debut, aged 45, in 1985 against Australia <laughs> in Sharjah, <laughs> where he picked up four for 23 in his second and final ODI, conceded 50 runs in 20 overs. Why he hadn't been picked before, I don't know. Why he was never picked again, I don't know. But he was good enough for the rest of the world in 1971-72. So there you go. For me, I think it's Ashley Woodcock, very briefly about him. He made those appearances within a few months in 1974. His only test was the third test in Adelaide in January when he was selected to open the batting with Keith Stackpole. Got 27 in that only innings. He didn't feature again in the Australian lineup. Uh, that was it for him. Uh, he was, in later life, he went to America to complete his master's degree and PhD and returned in the mid-80s to coach his local cricket club, Newcastle Falcons and Adelaide 36ers. He was strength and conditioning coach for. So... He's not a dusty old bastard. He has played in one and one only test match, one and one only ODI, and one and one only unofficial (laughs) test match. He's my man, Ashley Woodcock. (laughs) All right. Okay, look, I think that, like, yeah, maybe he's not... So pretty much by the time we get to the 70s, we think it's they're a bit too recent to be fully dusty and therefore maybe that's what Daniel's going with. Yeah. You can let us know, Daniel O'Connell. Drop us a line and we shall see how we've gone. Philippa Clark, next cab off the rank. Pip Clark has sent through $11.33. Very nice. Thank you, first of all. And eleven thirty-three. What does eleven thirty-three mean? Um, just going... Back to your previous answer, Daniel. Father Charles Marriott took his 11 wickets in 1933. 11.33. Mm. Uh, yeah, could work. N- could work. Not, it's not going to be that. I just, <laughs> just thought that was cute. I'd looked at other players who took 11 wickets in a test match. Uh, I thought it was interesting that Tony Locke always gets remembered for taking the one wicket when Laker takes 19. But he also took 11 in a match himself on three different occasions, which is pretty good going. One of those, he took 11 wickets and bowled 33 maidens. Uh, yeah, that's tangential. Um, things I didn't know about Tony Locke. You, I'm sure you know everything about Tony Locke. But, uh, <laughs> the third most catches ever held in first-class cricket, Tony Locke. 831 catches, mm. which is a lot. Also that he holds the 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 first-class equivalent of the Shane Warne record, Warren having the record for the most test runs without a century. Tony Locke has the most first-class runs without a century. But, I mean, Warren was, what, about 3,000? Um, Tony Locke's first-class runs, 10,342. Oh, that's impressive. 10,000 first-class runs and never made 100. He never made a higher score than 89, which he got in a test match once. Um, and only 27 half centuries out of those 10,000 runs, average 15, but he played so many games, played 654 games that he got past 10,000 runs. So um, impressive, but it's not going to be related to Tony Locke. Nobody's got a test career tally of 11.33 runs, which I did I did think that that might be something to do with it. Test match number 1,133 was the first test match ever played at Belreve Oval in Hobart. We were all getting very, 
dewy-eyed and emotional about the Ashes coming to Bell Reeve and finally, finally Tasmania getting its due, getting its recognition, being brought into <laughs> the Australian cricket family. Um, you know, it was a very emotional time for the uh, feature writers when the, uh, the Ashes test was happening. But, but Tassie's first ever test was 1989 against Sri Lanka when Dean Jones made a million runs and, and they won easily. But... Because I have you on the program with me, mm-hmm. Daniel, and uh, you, you made your thoughts about Gabby Allen known recently, I thought, let's have a look at a fellow called Douglas Jardine. Oh. I know, I know you appreciate it. Fill my breathing hard. I, was, I've got a, I bought a T-shirt with a sort of Andy Warhol version of six Douglas Jardines on it. Um, and it's, uh-huh. it's my favourite item of clothing. It's in the wash now. I should have worn it. But yeah. It's, <laughs> and I've got, do you know, I've got a picture of Douglas Jardine it was uh-huh. lovingly a pencil sketch of Douglas Jardine that was made by a colleague of mine at Tasmat Sofa in my sitting room. I genuflect wow. to him every night. If ever I don't know what to do, I turn to Douglas yeah. and say, Douglas, give me inspiration. Tell me what to do. <laughs> you know, he, he basically says, you know, hurl some hard object at someone's head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, what, what's the least pleasant way you can think of to resolve this situation? <laughs> Do that. Um, so, the, the year is 1928, Daniel. Um, Jardine starts that season, that first-class season, against the touring West Indian side for Surrey, makes 58. Then plays for the MCC against the touring West Indian side. It's a washout. He makes 10 not out. Plays some county games for Surrey, makes a 73 not out. Then he plays in the Gentleman v. Players match and makes 193. Then he plays for Oxford University versus the Foresters and makes 112. Then he plays for the Rest versus England. Adam and I have been campaigning to bring back the Rest in in general, but makes 74 not out for the Rest. And then he gets picked for the first test to play for England. Doesn't make many runs. But by this point, he has played for six different first-class teams in the course of the season in about nine games. Um, it, is, it is absurd to begin with. Right, we go on. Um, he, make, he goes back to the county championship for a couple of games, makes a 91 and a 157. Then he plays for the gentlemen again, making 86 and, and, and 40 when they're following on um, and, and plays quite well against the, against the tour and against the... the, the that's it's against the touring side, I think. And so that keeps him in the team for the second test. He makes 83 and gets run out. So mm. he's had this absurd season where he's played for every fucking team <laughs> in England at that point in time. <laughs> uh, keeps his spot in the test side on that basis. And over the course of that season, he made 1,133 runs, 1133. Oh, let it be that. Uh, that is absolutely beautiful. I mean, one of the great things about Jardine, of course, which I'm sure our, our listeners are very aware, is that, he hit one test century and ten half centuries, mm-hmm. still managed to average 48. I mean, that, that is consistency. It's, I mean, he, mm-hmm. he's basically the king of root maths. And if you're not familiar with mm-hmm. root Standard maths. Standard deviation. Yeah, root maths being that, you know, root hasn't got a proper average if you take out his mm-hmm. unbeaten double hundreds and uh, all of his hundreds. <laughs> Look, he's rubbish. <laughs> he's absolutely rubbish if you take out all the big scores. <laughs> Whereas with Bradman, uh, with Jardine, I beg your pardon, if you take out his one and only hundred, he still basically averages what he averaged pretty much. <laughs> yep. He averaged 48. Right. And, uh, yeah. Oh, I, let, it be, let it be Jardine. That makes my heart sing. Mm. <laughs> Jardine in 1928. Probably not that, uh, Philippa, but you can let us know. Dave Brown comes up next. $4.80 in AUD. And Dave said this, the one clue I'll give 
is that this person would certainly have known Ernie Maine. Now, if you uh, did not hear this episode a few months ago, Ernie Maine, whose real name was Edgar, was a guy who organised an Australian tour to the United States in 1913. It was not given official sort of touring status, test status or whatever, but they played the, the Gentleman of Philadelphia a lot. You can find the Gentleman of Philadelphia episode if you want to go back and learn about Bart King, possibly the greatest non-test cricketer of all time, um, and the team that Ernie Maine sent over to the US. So something to do with that, Dave Brown has suggested, and uh, you have the floor, Daniel. Thank you. Well, because the clue sent me so strongly in that direction, I didn't really bother looking too much further um you know test match 480 no point it's too late test match number that is the scores of 480 they're they're quite hard to find four for 80s very difficult to identify a four for 80 of any great quality i looked through there's Mm -hmm. the the 1912 team the australian team that came over to england for the triangular tournament you know the likes of Kellaway Mm -hmm. and mccartney and Sid Gregory and whatnot. Warren Bardsley at that point. Yeah, I think he's. I think he squeaks in there too. Yeah, and you're going through and looking at all of them, and you know their tour numbers don't add up to 480 runs. Get get really close. Got tantalisingly close. I think Charlie McCartney across the tour got to about 450 in in uh, Test matches, but not quite there. There was no way I could like mangle these numbers into anything. So I started digging around the teammates that were there, having having had a completely futile digression into the most number of balls bowled in a test match by someone, which, incidentally, Atoll Rowan, the South African, did bowl 480 balls in a test match in 1949, mm. which England won by three wickets, weirdly, after a very um, sporting declaration. You don't get that in South Africa anymore. But he most definitely <laughs> would not have known Ernie Main. So um, I went back uh-huh. to that side, and I looked around... And I have a feeling that I might have got the man. Now, it's possibly specious, but I think it works for me. So way back when, in this side, on the tour of England in 1912, was a chap called Sid Emery. And he was nicknamed Mad Mick by his teammates. (laughs) Mad Mick. I mean, you know, he hasn't got the name Mick. Seems affectionate. Sidney Hand Emery, as in hand. Great name. Hand. Yep. He was born in Sydney. He died in Sydney in 1967, aged 81. So he might have known Atoll Rowan, but I doubted it. Um, he was known to be an extremely fast googly bowler, apparently. He spun the ball prodigiously, but his bowling was erratic and unpredictable. Arthur Maley said of him that he was a wild, relentless fellow with the strength of Hercules. And he, he added, okay. Hercules. He added, when Alf Noble told him he would be a great bowler if he could control his googly, Emery answered... I'd be a great man if I could control myself. So he really was <laughs> Mad Mick. Um, CB, uh, CB Fry c- described him as the world's best worst bowler, which you've got to love, okay. haven't you? Um, and yep. apparently he was a devastating can I ask bowler. You a question. Of course, yes. How can you be a fast Thunderbolt googly bowler? Mm. How, how can you bowl a spinning delivery at terrifying speed? Well, I'm kind of guessing that terrifying speed is relative. Uh-huh. So okay. I reckon he might have got one or two up at about 64, 65 maybe. He's, he, he reputedly <laughs> okay. had an incredibly long run up. 
And he was, he was said, this is a beautiful quote of his, he bowled his bosies faster than any other man I've seen, and when he found his length, was as close to unplayable as any bowler within memory. The trouble was that he did not find it, or keep it, very often. So, <laughs> he was, apparently his best ball was a full toss, according to CB Fry, right. I think. Now, that's, that's pretty damning. But he looks fairly crazy. Fast. He's got, I see a, got yeah. a picture of him right in front of me and he's got really saturnine eyes and sunken eyes with a brow, you know. He looks, he looks the, full, mm-hmm. the full lot. But you're saying to me, well, where the hell does 480 come into this? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think this is too much of a stretch. I think this will work. He played four test matches, you know. Four test matches and he scored the six runs. Picked up five wickets at an average of 49.79, so... Not awfully impressive. Okay. But he has a highest first-class score of 80. Four test matches, highest first-class score of 80, 480. Oh. Mad Mick Sid, Sydney Hand Emery. <laughs> he knew all the people. He knew all the people in the clue. He played in that side. He went out to Australia, to America. He played on that mm. tour in America. And he did the double. He did a thousand, got 1,000 runs and 100 wickets on the US mm. tour. So if the US tour is important which I think it is in the clue, I think he might work. And he's a man worth exploring because he was clearly batshit crazy. Is he connected to Phil Emery in any way, the, the wicketkeeper of the I can't, I know, 90s? I, I can find 80s. no relationships that mm. would suggest that. Um, none really. But Arthur Maley writes okay. about him a lot in 10 for 66 and all that. So, um, yeah, I, I find no... Uh, no family links, but um, could be part of that. You know the big, the big, the big Emery family. You know they they run a they run a large business. Uh, they all they all sit at the administrative level. It's called the Emery Board. Oh, very good. Quite scratchy, I should think. Environment that one. That's why his middle name was Hand. <laughs> I think we know all about him now. I almost feel like I'm, I'm going to start dreaming <laughs> right, about well, Sid Emery. <laughs> We, we will look into Sid Emery a bit more and see, uh, see if we can dig up some more information about him. Uh, so that's, that's our, that's our um, attempt for you, Dave Brown. Four test batches and a highest first-class score of 80. It's, um, mm, you know, <laughs> it's, well, it's, it's we'll, we'll see how we go. <laughs> uh, Cameron M has been waiting for this one for a while. $3.44 AUD, Daniel. And he says, uh, a small but cryptic clue, this pledge is much closer to home but the player and stat are not happy sleuthing. Okay. Now, I, I am assuming that by this he means my home or the home of Adam and I, the, the home of the people who, who do the show. So a pledge that is close to home, but the player and the stat are not close to home. What if we travel to the most annoying place to get to um, in terms of cricket? Uh, you know, when, when, you, when you have to travel from Australia to anywhere, it's a long way away. But when you go to the Caribbean, it's like 54 hours with six different stopovers. Why is that? It doesn't make any sense this- to me because it's, it's like it's much closer to you than you are to us. Mm. Uh, it's not much closer because you have to go via America. So you usually go to LA or, so, or Houston or something. Or you, go, you go New Zealand to Houston or you go Sydney to LA and then you go to Miami and then you get a flight down to mm. whatever the the first stop is to, to Barbados or whatever it so is. So it's all but the connections, going is it? To, 
Yeah, if you're going to Antigua or something like that, they're in you know most of the islands don't have direct flights to the states. You know, they go through two or three different hub airports. And if I were you, you if I were you, twenty I, hour layover. You can't go to South America and, and pop over that way. Well, South America is a big flight as well. You can you can go Sydney to Buenos Aires or Sydney to Santiago, um, but then you've still pretty much got to do Miami. Uh, really, because you know, flights from Brazil. There aren't many direct flights from Brazil into the Caribbean either. They tend to get all shuttle through Miami to how annoying to Bridgetown or whatever it might be. Anyway, that is a place in the world where we go to um, to find George Headley, who you mentioned earlier, the maker of that two hundred and seventy. His test record is one of those slices of of, of you know the promise the the potential promised that, that that fate didn't allow to be fully seen. He only played 22 test matches in those 10 centuries, 550s. Um, second, narrowly second to Bradman in terms of consistency of hundreds made and, and all of the rest of it. And you could say, well, that's a flash in the pan, but he did that over the course of 24 years. So 22 tests in 24 years. Uh, one of the very few players with more tonnes than 50s and, and by a a massive margin there one of very few to average over 60 at the end of his career made 176 on debut um, extraordinary ability to come back in and hit the same level starts in 1930 and basically played so few matches because they might play three or four tests and then a couple of years would go by before the next series he had a four-year gap from 35 to 39 and then the war starts doesn't play again until 1948 has a swan song as a, in his mid 40s in 1954, but there was a time Daniel when he did play, but there was no test tour. It was in 1932. Lord Tennyson's eleven visited Jamaica, so this is one of the teams that doesn't get retrospectively given test status for whatever reason. When every other bloody team going around gets test status, so this is a first class match. And Lord Tennyson's eleven have Jamaica five for 215, pretty good position, and then echoes of uh, De Pisa uh, coming in from before. Massive partnership. Headley makes 344, which is Cameron's Ooh. number. Uh, and a fellow named Clarence Pasalegi makes 261. So Jamaica makes 702. They win by an innings. And George Headley has made the highest ever score by a Caribbean player, one that will last until Sobers comes along with the 365 and, and Lara after that. So it remains the highest score of his career. It's a huge sort of point of pride for people in Jamaica that he's done this to, to this English team. So this is the player, George Headley, and the stat, his score at Kingston, and they are a long way from my home. How can I make them closer to home, as the clue suggests, Daniel? Yeah, how? The score was made. The score was made. At Melbourne Park, home of Jamaica's Melbourne Cricket Club. Bam. Oh, you smashed that out of the park, big boy. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah, that is an absolute beauty. A couple of things on George Headley. Now you, now you mention him. I keep coming back to this book, don't I? Who only cricket know? Because he was kind of mm. dragged out of retire, well, retirement. He was well into his 40s and he was playing club cricket mm. in England. And um, the, what the West Indies selectors wanted was these big icons of the game and he was dragged back into the the test team well well into his mid-40s and just not good enough by that stage so mm. you know that average of 60 actually suffered a little bit like Wally Hammond by having to play post-war games when they really mm. were past it and, and couldn't see it as well and are up against a really good England team 
And of course, the the phrase the Black Bradman was commonly used about him in Australia, mm. but in the West Indies, you guessed it, Don Bradman was known as the White Headley. Yeah, and as, as he should have been, they they had each other covered for uh, consistency of record. It's just Bradman got to play two and a half times as, as many Test matches. I read that they had a, a public outcry that he must play in 1954 and they took up a public subscription, like a, a sort right. of GoFundMe equivalent for 1954, and they raised £1,000 to cover his travel costs, at which point he felt so embarrassed that he had yeah. to come back and play because all of this money had been thrown in. So well, That's right. Because um, yeah, it, it, was, didn't make it, was many... to, it was to get him over from, from England mm. where he was playing club cricket. And he's yeah, still, that's what I mean. He's still averaging sort of 65, 70, I think, in, in the Lancashire leagues and what have you. But... Sure. When you're up against the likes of, you know, Truman and Laker and whatnot, and uh, it, it starts to get a little bit more tricky when, you, when you're that much older. Yes. Well, we'll come back to the Lancashire Leagues uh, fairly shortly, I imagine. But for the moment, uh, that's, that's our suggestion, Cameron M. Let us know. Uh, for the moment, we've got a double header coming up. It is $5.37 in AUD. It comes in from Will Cuxon and from Elliot Diamond. So they may have different mm. reasons for picking this number. We will give them a couple of options. Uh, you will have a go and see if you can work out what Will might have been guessing, Daniel. Well, I'll be interested to hear your workings in a minute as well because I, I looked at this and unfortunately there was there's something screaming at me that meant that I didn't really dig around much deeper. But where I did deep, I did dig was, you know, cap numbers, for example. Is it, it's got to be an England player, 5-3-7 and it's... Angus Fraser could be Angus Fraser but there's uh, not a great yeah. story that I can weave about Angus Fraser except that I've never seen a man look so exhausted after one ball and and actually there is a nice story about Angus Fraser a friend of mine is the scorer at Lords and he remembers there was a lunch break and the food at Lords for the players is notoriously delicious as I'm sure your listeners are aware and on this particular occasion there was a kind of massive prawn cocktail starter followed by a rack of lamb, followed by spotted dick. And Mike Gatting, a notoriously, um, well, a, a, a gastronome, let's say, had brought his son along <laughs> and, and watched on with tremendous pride as his son went back for a second rack of lamb. So it clearly runs in the family. But Angus Fraser... <laughs> Carl Rack of Lamb. <laughs> Carl Rack of Lamb. <laughs> uh, Angus Fraser ate the lot. He ate the, the prawn cocktail, he ate the rack of lamb, he ate the spotted dick, and then was informed by a skipper that he was bowling the first ball after lunch. And apparently, <laughs> it took quite a long time to mark out the run-up, and it took even longer to bowl the ball, and it kind of emerged and sort of powder puff at about 60 miles an hour, coming as much down the slope as you possibly can. A wonderful player, but I don't think it's him. So... Yeah. I'm afraid I'm going to be self-indulgent and I'm going to tell you a story that relates to me because 5 for 37 screams one man and one man only and uh, it's Stuart Broad. And I know Australian listeners will now be hexing and throwing garlic mm -hmm. at their podcasting mm -hmm. offerings. But it was... Look, even even we have to admit that he's big, he's bad, he's better than his dad. Yeah. Stuart Broad. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's fair. And it was when he first came to prominence. He took 5 for 37 in 2009 at the Oval. It was a deciding match in the Test Series. It was a quite a poor quality Test Series, but the matches themselves were curiously interesting because it had switched back and forth between Australia at Cardiff. They should have won the game, were it not for England's time-wasting and Jimmy Anderson, Monty Panesar, and then 
England came bursting through at Lords, and then it got rained off. Then they got mullered at Headingley. So we arrived at the Oval. It was all square. Uh, England had scored a, a doable staying in the game type total of 332. But Australia were doing what Australians do if you're English. They were about to break our hearts. There was an opening partnership of 73. Going well, Shane Watson and Simon Katic. The ball is thrown to the Aryan Petri dish experiment. Stuart Broad, who has been farmed by Mengele back in the 40s and was discovered, and then a blowtorch was put on the Petri dish, and suddenly this six-foot-six-inch blonde wunderkind emerged to wreak havoc across all people's lives. And he takes, in this spell, that basically wins the ashes from nowhere. It's one of those things where five test series is hanging in the balance. There's been to and fro and to and fro, and in the space of around about an hour, he kicks up his heels, comes charging in from the pavilion end. He gets rid of Shane Watson, LBW. What a surprise. There was no DRS then, otherwise he would have had a look. Ricky Ponting, bold for eight. Mike Hussey, a delicious delivery that was just going to clip the top of the off stump, but given out LBW for a duck. Michael Clark driving away from his body for three, but the wicket that I will always keep in my memory and cherish forever is his fifth and last one because it was my first series as a cricket commentator. I was doing Test Match Sofa, much like White Line, from my sitting room. Mm-hmm. And we were tired and emotional. We were drinking a lot. It was five test matches. We weren't used to the, the pressures and strains of screaming at TVs and, uh, mm-hmm. and drinking too much. And <laughs> I would dispute that. I think you well, all spent a lot of your lives doing exactly that. that that's a fair dispute, but yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, it, 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 was, it was concentrated one after the other, and it was a beautiful sunny day. Yeah. And we had a degree of imposter syndrome. You know, what were we doing? Some people had written about us, and, you know, were we really up to it? Were we really cricket commentators? Did we really have the feel for it? Because we'd come from nowhere to do this. And mm. one of my commentators, a guy called Nigel Walker, who's still commentating for guerrilla cricket and still does work sometimes for the, uh, the world feed on the radio. He's at the World Cup final. And he's a very, very sweary man. And when Brad Haddon was out, bowled by beauty, late away swinger that clattered into the middle and off stumps, splaying the wicket like a hillbilly's teeth. Nigel was on commentary. And he said, Adin, bold him. Australia are in this a fucking ray. Which was my favourite tamesis <laughs> of all time. And it was only made better when I watched the highlights on the TV later that day to discover that Jeffrey Boycott had said, Adin, bold him. Australia are in disarray. So the only difference between us <laughs> and the mainstream was an expletive-laden tamesis. This a fucking right. Uh, that was five for 37. And just, and just for my own satisfaction that I haven't been a little bit lazy here, Stuart Broad also played in an England side that scored 537 against India in the first test match of 2016, recalling two things that would never happen these days. Australia being beaten by England crushingly and England managing to score 537 against India in India. So those are two things that, that warmed the cockles of my heart. That's my 537. I would say very briefly that I had a short digression into giant bowling averages mm-hmm. because I thought 53.7 might feature. And just as a sidebar issue, 
Bangladesh are playing against South Africa at the moment and they contain two of the bowlers who have taken 10 wickets to have the highest bowling average. Taskin Ahmed, 59.7. Ebadot Hossein, 56.7. They're both playing against South Africa. They both did quite well, but there's no 53.7. So, mm. for me, I'm I'm hurling Stuart Broad at you and I'm, I'm really sorry for whichever one of the two we've decided. <laughs> Is it Daniel has got that one? No. No, it's Will. It's so Will. Will's, got, Will's got that one. Sorry, Will. Um, but, you know, as as we say, we can always revisit. Um, now, Elliot Diamond is our other 537. He did send a clue, which just said, my favourite cricketer growing up. I, too, looked at Angus Fraser and thought he was unlikely to be anybody's favourite cricketer growing up, even allowing for national prejudices. So I, I didn't pursue that any further. I doubt it's Glenn McGrath's 5 for 37 against Sri Lanka in Darwin. I don't think that's the McGrath one that stays with anybody particularly. And I, I know from the messages that Elliot has recently gone to work in New Zealand, but I think it's recently enough that he would not have adopted Chris Martin, uh, who took 5 for 37 in Joburg in 2006. I mean, Chris Martin was fairly adoptable given his shambolic hapless batting and all of the rest of it but um yeah I'm, I, I, I doubt we're going that way i do know from previous numbers that elliot has a australian domestic cricket interest however and so trying to remember who's taken 537 is near impossible trying to find out who's taken 537 is pretty hard as well unless you you know we, we don't have the kind of uh, first-class cricket databases and all those kinds of things, so we have to go about these things differently. But I, so I was, I was looking for a few that I could sort of try to try to track down in one way or another, and I didn't think someone like Brett Dory, the big Tasmanian, would be singing out to Elliot or or Damien Wright, who was quite a useful bowler for a while. But uh, and and I thought they're a little bit. Just that smidge too recent, maybe, to be a growing up for someone of what I'm guessing Elliot's age would be. But there is one possibility. There's one. There's one that I'm willing to throw out there. Do you remember Adam Dale, Daniel? Yes, I do. Kind of was he, was he slightly medium pacey, not too well. I say medium pacey. Is that being un, is that being mean? He was a kind of no, no, no. Quite he, dobby. He was he was a one thirty k sort of yeah. bowler, but he was a swing. I mean, I think he could get a little brisker if he wanted to, but he was he was a swing merchant more than yeah. a, more than he wasn't a fast bowler. He would he was a Bhuvi Kumar kind of yeah. version, you know. But he made the ball do a fair bit. He he had a decent run in Australia's one day team for a while in the late nineties and could bat a bit and, and all of the rest of it. Played for Queensland. Useful player. His last couple of seasons got wrecked by injury, but he did play all the way through Queensland season in 2000-2001 when they won the Sheffield Shield that year. He took 46 wickets at 23, and his best figures that season were 5 for 37. So that is my suggestion for you, Elliot Diamond. I like it, and I like being reminded of uh, of, of Daly, or whatever his nickname would have been. Mm. Daylo. <laughs> <laughs> J-Lo and Taylor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I would have called him Uphill, you know, Uphill and Down. Oh, very good, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, but that's probably a, probably a little bit too um, did he telegraph? Too abstract. Did he, did he telegraph his uh, outswinger or, or did he just mail it in? Uh, Daily. Daily, oh, you know. Okay. I mean, I don't yeah. know. I, yeah. I, 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 right. I get you. It, yeah. That's really, really tenuous. 
You were you were right yeah, not to laugh. Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't understand it. I would have laughed if I could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. Um, right, OK, so that's our doubleheader. That's Will and Elliot. We've got a couple more numbers to do. One of them is for El Presidente Richard Bond McNally. Uh, it is 5.46 in your home currency of GBP, Daniel, and he says there is no link to previous pledges except that it's about a cricketer about whom I know nothing, so you can tell me a story if there's one to be found. Well, there is one to be found, I think. Um, just tell me, is El Presidente, do we have any idea how old El Presidente is? Um, I don't strictly have an idea. Um, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd sort of, I suppose you could hazard guesses from uh, from correspondence, but usually, the, usually, I mean, you know, I suppose having been designated the, the final word president, um, we're, we're always thinking about the campaign we could run for Richard Bond McNally to... Mm. You know, to, in a West Wing style campaign, I suppose that in my mind uh, he just has to be in his fifties because that's what how I'd envisage that sort of presidential candidate. But um, okay, but I might I might be aging the president too much. Well, I'd, I'm imagining a kind of slightly more youthful president here. Um, mm, I think so. Yeah, I'm maybe for, a Zelensky kind of. Figure. Yeah, or Clinton, something like that. Mm. So I'm thinking if he's if our president's sort of like forty to forty five, then there's every chance that he might have. Might not have come across this cricketer, but but sort of has a, in a way a kind of flickering. Mm-hmm. Oh, who was that guy that used to play? Because if you look up cap number four five four six, and bearing in mind, you know these are in British pounds. There's an English player, cap number five four six, who's got quite a story to tell. It's not a very, it's quite a sad story, but we won't focus on all the sadnesses of it. There was a this chap played one Test match, another one Test wonder. He played it in 1990 at the Oval, and it was common in that time, uh, throughout the 80s really, and 90s, for people to get sort of one test match at the Oval and then not go on tour and instead be um, looked over for somebody who mm. got 75 in the one-day final that took place two weeks after the last test. They tended to be bowlers. Simon Kerrigan. That kind of thing. And they tended to be bowlers, mm. and the Oval tended to be a very good wicket to bat on. And it sort of like gave them a career and destroyed them. There are a couple of batters who had that too. Paul Parker back in, um, Mm -hmm. I want to say 1981 perhaps. Uh, Alan Butcher, the Surrey opener in 1979, was one of these one one cat wonders that played at the Oval. But this one uh, was one of five black players who played for Middlesex and won many a county championship. He won four county championships in 1982, 85, 1990, 1992 and picked up winner's medals in the Benson Edges Cup 19. 83, which was uh, one of the other one-day competitions, 55-over competition. Uh, he was born in St. Vincent, and he was a brisk, slightly quicker than medium pace. Um, I, I rang my friend Graham Fowler to ask about him because he played against him many times. He said this chap was one of the nicest guys you could wish to meet. Absolutely no chatter on the field of play, a really sort of hmm. respectful guy. He was also a man of great faith and sincere faith. He didn't uh, didn't want to play cricket on a Sunday, which in the 80s, having emigrated from St. Vincent Vincent to come over and play for for Middlesex and qualified to play for England, if you didn't play in the Sunday league, 
you put yourself slightly out of the shop window because that was televised in this country every Sunday. Mm. And that was where, you know, people's consciousness and indeed, actually, the selectors who were mostly just hanging around in committee rooms getting pissed on gin and tonic uh, would just, <laughs> oh, have a look. Oh, I see. Uh, I see. Paul Parker's got another 50. Let's get him in the test team. Because in those days, just as it is now, it makes no goddamn difference whether you play one day cricket or Red mm. Bull cricket. Uh, all those played by the Red Bull in those days, of course. This chap went by the name of Neil Williams. And I knew him, knew of him very well because he was one of the, these five black players who played for Middlesex. The others were Roland Butcher, Wilf Slack and Norman Cowens, who, of course, played for England in the 82-83 series. Roland Butcher was the first black man to mm. play for England. And like Roland Butcher, he went back to his home country. Roland Butcher, of course, re-emigrated, re if you like. And unfortunately, though, he suffered the fate more like that of Wilf Slack, who was an England opener who played very few test matches, but he died at the crease. Neil Williams didn't die at the crease, but he died rather tragically at the age of 43 after suffering a stroke in St. Vincent and was then flown over to England where he died of mm. complications from pneumonia some time later. Um, he was a, a fine, kind of, I would say county bowler, probably, uh, but he had that one test match. And the one test match that he played, I'm afraid to tell you, it didn't go unbelievably brilliantly for him. It never would do at the Oval. India, 606 for nine declared. <laughs> Poor old Neil, 41 overs, five maidens, two for 148. Apparently, he got more swing than anybody else, but he went for a few, didn't he? His best moment in the match came with a bat, where he, uh, he batted as night watchman, scored 38. His two wickets, in fairness, were Sachin Tendulkar and Mohammed Azaruddin. So, you know... Not bad. Handy. Yeah, handy. But unfortunately, uh, never really seen again. He did play, by the way, in Tasmania in 83-84. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, he's got a little link with Australia. And he he played oh, yes. uh, just, just one last thing on those black players. I'd be interested to know what you think of this. If you look up his player profile, and I'd heard this phrase before, apparently Butcher, Slack, Cowens, Williams and Wayne Daniel were known affectionately as the Jackson Five. Is that... Is, mm. Does that feel... Does that sit well with you? I don't know. Is it? Is it the sensibilities no, of, 20, sound, of 2022? It doesn't yeah. feel quite right. I don't know. <laughs> it it doesn't sound affectionate. It sounds racist. It does sound a, a little bit, doesn't it? But anyway, um, that, the, 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 we're, we're harking back to touch, different you know, times, aren't we? Uh, well, they're not, yeah, they're not that different. <laughs> no. Um... I don't know. <laughs> we're pretty. People are pretty keen to hand out leave passes. Well, that was twenty years ago. The world was a different place back then. Anyway, it's yuck. I sense that it is Neil Williams, though. That's my feeling, because he says it's a player about whom he doesn't really know. What else might he be connected with? It could have been mm -hmm. a five for forty-six somewhere. It could have been something of that sort. But Neil Williams mm -hmm. is just exactly one of those kind of England cricketers that. If you were of a certain age, you'd be dimly aware of, but you'd have no idea who he really was. And I, I think he was on my list. I did a segment a couple of years ago about every player who got Tendulkar as their first wicket in oh, tests, yeah. of which there is there is quite a cast, and there are some there are extraordinary stories in there as well. There's um, 
can't remember who it is at the moment, but there's somebody who got Tendul- who got three test wickets and two of them were Tendulkar. So 66% <laughs> of his test wickets were Tendulkar. Um, what well, do you know? Yes, do you know uh, just a uh, brief digression on that. I, I, had, I, I said to Ian O'Brien, thinking back to the mm. Test Match Sofa days when he used to commentate with us in 2010, um, as we were going through his bowling statistics, we established that he had got an abnormal number of his wickets were the top order. Because once the rabbits came in, then, you know, the other bowlers, Shane Bond, give it a ball. I'm wrapping this lot. Mm-hmm. Poor old Ian O'Brien was bowling against, you know, Ricky Ponting and Muhammad Yusuf and Yunus uh, Ahmed and Inzmumble Hack and mm. all that. And so we, went, we did a little bit of statistical analysis and discovered that the average score of the people that he got out, if you added them all together and then you know, divided by mm-hmm. the number of kids he got, was something like 44 which is pretty damn good. And I wonder yeah. if we shouldn't have two averages for bowlers. The bowling average, as we currently have it, and the batting average of each wicket. So, you know, mm. you take the 300 wickets and let's say you've got 150 of them averaged 50 and 150 of them averaged 25. Then your right. bowling average, your, your batter's average would then be 37.5, uh-huh. if you get me. Yes. And I think that would yep. give us an your interesting feet. reflection of the quality oh. of batters that a bowler gets out. That uh, is our suggestion for President Richard Bond McNally. Uh, drop us a line, El Prez, Eric Parnas, 303 AUD. There is a clue, and the clue says it is a sound one. Okay, and so initially I thought, what is the most famous individual sound in cricket? I mean, there are the, you know, the, the generic sounds, bat on ball and all the rest of it, but individual sounds... It could be the clunk of Michael Clarke's stump being knocked out of the ground by Simon Jones. Uh, that that lovely sound because it's just one stump. It's a single note. It's musical. It's mellow. It's 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 rather lovely, really. You could do a composition around it. People like listening back to it just for its aesthetic sense. Uh, so I thought, is it to do with this sound? What? score did Australia make in the third Ashes Test of 2005? The number I'm looking for is 303. They made 302. Ach, Bugger. Okay. Oh, so nearly, close. Nearly. I mean, that is brutal. Could be a typo. So, so that, and then I thought, okay, well, let's go more direct. Um, sound, a sound one. Look at the cap number. Cap number 303 for Australia is Peter Sounder Sleep. Uh, a man whose nickname Adam always enjoys saying every time the chance comes up. Sound up, yeah. sound asleep, get it? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he is 303 and he is sound. What do we know about Peter's sleep, Daniel? Uh, another leg spinner. This has been a real leg spinner. It's been a leg spinner's and, and heavy. Caribbean show. One of those classic spinners who was not very devastating with the ball but was very useful with the bat. Tended to bat seven, even six on occasion in the Australian team. Born in 1957, played for South Australia, gets his debut during the World Series era in 1979 when everybody's gone to play for Packer and and they have to grab whoever's left. So he makes his debut in the Safraz Nawaz match at the MCG when Safraz takes nine in the innings and Australia have a batting collapse of seven wickets for five runs to lose the Test match. That's impressive, Um, isn't it? I mean, that's that's, that's England-esque, that is. That's that's a good effort. yeah. I mean, that is against a severely reverse swinging ball um, uh, in which there's, there's, there's some understanding that these things can happen. But, yeah, it's a hell of a collapse. Um, Safras is still on the, on the, has the big honour board um, at the MCG for the best figures by a visiting, 
player in a test match. So he played in that test match, got dropped immediately. <laughs> Later in 1979, he, he got to play two tests, not consecutively, but sporadically during a tour of India. Didn't take a wicket in either of them. Not going so great. Got one test in Pakistan in 1982 and took one for 158. Oh, <laughs> Some Mitchell Swepson areas in Pakistan. Out of the team until the 86-7 Ashes third test. He gets brought back in the third test. Takes four wickets, but it's a draw. Takes one wicket in the next test, but that's an innings defeat, and they lose the series with that loss. And then in the last test match, he gets his only career five for in the second innings at Sydney to get a consolation win for Australia in, in that series. So, you know, played a few more times over the next three years. Um, ended up playing 14 tests all up. Made useful runs. Didn't get a lot of wickets. His second last match was the one that I mentioned earlier against Sri Lanka at Bell Reeve. A piece of history to play oh. in the first test match ever at Hobart. And he finished up in 1990, but the, the interesting thing is he wound up after this. He also played in the Lancashire Leagues, which have come up a lot today. He wound up as the captain of the Lancashire Second Eleven, and apparently was a big influence in developing a young tearaway named Andrew Flintoff, who as a sort of uh, late teens or you know turned 20 or whatever he was was thinking of giving up cricket because he was disillusioned he wasn't making any runs and he was having back problems as a bowler and apparently it was Peter Sleep who took him aside and said you've got what it takes to become something special so you can blame Peter Sleep for the 2005 ashes is what I'm saying Peter um, Sleep Peter Sleep uh, he was 303 well, I, 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 I'm glad you mentioned Peter Seat because a, a couple of things spring to mind with Peter Seat. You said there he was captain of the Lancashire Second Eleven, which doesn't sound mm-hmm. great, but mm-hmm. you've got to remember that Lancashire at various points had as their overseas pros, they had Colin Croft and Wazim Akram, I think, at the same time, and Clive Lloyd playing, <laughs> I think, at various points. So you're only allowed to field two players. So what they would do is they would get their fast bowlers, Wazim Akram and Colin Croft would play alternate games. So if you were playing in the second 11 against Lancashire, you were either up against the most fearsome left-arm swing bowler of all time or you were up against the most murderously lunatic fast bowler that ever have ever been and he was always very angry to be left out Colin Croft apparently so you'd turn up as a 19 year old oh my god <laughs> this guy's hurtling in at you but Peter Sleep captaining that sort of does kind of make sense and the other thing that springs to mind with yeah. Peter Sleep because uh, I have very fond memories of him because when I was about 12 maybe 11 I used to play a lot of dice cricket with myself uh, in the winters in the lonely off season mm. during the, you know, the second world war mm-hmm. And I'd sit in my attic room, and unlike Samuel Beckett, I wasn't composing poetry. I had developed a dice cricket game that was so elaborate that I would, you would literally start by rolling to see what the conditions were. And if it told me it was raining, I would then roll the dice again to see how many hours it was raining for, and then I'd have to not play for however long the dice told me. Yeah, I was that insane. Um, I had to roll usually a die at least four times because I'd, had to factor in the likelihood of obstructing the field, which was extremely low. And I constructed this tour where the Dulwich College under 12s went round Australia and played against mm. all the state teams. But they, mm. because I didn't know who the players would be, I basically imagined the sons of the current state teams. So uh, I remember on one of the occasions the dice rolled well in my favour I got 100 it was against Peter Sleep's son 
So I've, I've still got the scorebook book somewhere. It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said this old man got one for 158. Then, uh, <laughs> and then I talk, they probably... talked the kid around the park. <laughs> <laughs> had a good chance against his son. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> uh, the fearsome. Uh, <laughs> that, I mean, that is a window into the soul, Daniel. That yeah, is, I was a curious uh, child. That hasn't really like changed. The start, the start of every movie where some sad, solitary kid is sitting in some high attic room, <laughs> you know, doing something lonely. There's usually a magical world that opens up to them and takes them away from from their earthly troubles. But in your case, it was belting Peter Sleep's kid around the park. <laughs> yeah, he was very accommodating. I gave weightings to all yeah. of the players on the basis. So the die was the dies were weighted. They, they, and they were weighted on the, on the strength of how good they were. So I think Peter Sleep's son got the same weighting as Peter Sleep, which wasn't a great weighting. Mm. Um, okay. And I would always bring him on to bowl if I was batting, that kind of thing. You know? uh, uh, yes, no, weighting. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, well, he, he Peter Sleep did curiously end up uh, breaking the record for the most season runs in the Lancashire League uh, right towards the end. He, he's batting got better and he ended up having a prolific season apparently so I think he still holds that record which is pretty good considering there have been some very good players come through that league as younger folks so you've got one more number to go Daniel and then you are free you'll be released back uh, to get your books and your dice out and, oh. and fill in your time in in, <laughs> in a way that only you know how your number comes from Ben Woolgar it is in US dollars it is $7.51 right now well, I was, there wasn't a massive amount of cluage to go with this, was there? So I had to do a fair no, bit no of clue. I had to do a fair bit of you know like what is this going to be now? There's a there's a few things mm-hmm. that instantly spring to mind because 751 is emblazoned on the soul of every Englishman because of the highest test score, Brian Lara scoring 400 mm. not out at Antigua. Curiously enough, the last time England actually won a Test series in Austra- in the West Indies, they still managed to concede seven hundred and fifty-one <laughs> for five <laughs> in Antigua. There's some great bowling figures in that, by the way. Batty two for one hundred and eighty-five. Poor old oh. Gareth Batty always always seemed to get a bit of a, a rum do. And um, I was which, which Test in the series was it? The last one. So. Um, right, they'd, so they'd already won the series. England had won the series, and uh, Harmison had yep. blown them away with a, with his own seven for, as I recall. Seven, seven for not many. Yeah. Seven for not many, exactly. And I was, I was working with Steve Harmison at the, during the Ashes for BT, and he talked about that Brian Lara innings and that test match because they were, con- were not, not just convinced. It, as far as they're concerned, that England bowling attack, Lara was out for a duck and not given. And so they're particularly bitter about the fact that uh, they were four, he got four hundred not out. <laughs> it's yeah. just a, a fair. I, I, I would, I would maybe advance the thesis that as international bowlers, if you can't get someone out in between naught and four hundred, if you can't create a second, a ch- second opportunity chance yeah. before the four hundred <laughs> comes up, that might be a bit more on you than on the umpiring. Well, I think that's a very fair point, Jeffrey. Uh, <laughs> England didn't lose Maybe the game. Not one I would make to Stephen Harmison in person. No, he's a big lad, and uh, and he's still bitter about it. So yeah, don't do that mm. when you meet him. No, uh, England did draw the game despite being bowled out for two hundred and eighty-five, being forced to follow on. It was a wretched pitch. 
they lasted 137 it overs, scored 422. Antigua. It is. It's dreadful. I mean, it's like anti-cricket. So, 751 could have been that. But, you know, is it? Then I've got two other options before I'm going to alight on the one that I like the most for stories mm-hmm. ver- uh, purposes. Dale Stain took 751 at Nagpur in 2010. And being the lovely man that he is, um, he said he got lucky because they changed the ball. And the moment they changed the ball, it started reverse swinging. And that's how he took all his wickets because he's a, a humble chap, is Dale Stain. Mm. Yes, I got lucky in being able to bowl at 146 kilometres an hour, <laughs> thus producing unplayable reverse swing. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> but which, which I aimed accurately at the base of off stump. <laughs> got very fortunate. I mean, if you're taking seven for in Nagpur, just take the plaudits. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Just yeah. take the plaudits. Yeah. Um, it's not a thing fast bowlers do. Then... There's another guy who's also taken 751, and it's a bit more famous 751 because 7 for 51 in a test match is, well, you know, it's brilliant, but it's it's not noteworthy necessarily. The 7 for 51 in an ODI would be, and if you did it in a World Cup, that would be super mm. noteworthy. Winston Davis, the great West Indian fast bowler, who was a bit unlucky, really, to be around at a time when there were about 15... West Indian fast bowlers who would all have played 100 test matches for England. Um, unfortunately, mm. they were all West Indian and they hadn't worked out yet mm. how you could just play for England and have a career that way. So he played... Alternatively, it. they would have played four tests for England and then had their careers <laughs> somehow ruined by fuckery, bureaucrats, selection... Uh, well, they'd have been made to bowl... and they'd have been made bad to, physiotherapy. Made to, they'd be made to bowl 45 overs at the Sinhalese Sports Club in Colombo on a flat deck. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And then their arm would have fallen off. Uh, that, that's how we yeah. would have destroyed Winston Davis. But he came over, he, he played cricket in England, he, he played uh, for Glamorgan, and he took 7 for 51 in the World Cup of 1983 against Australia. And bear in mind that Holding and Roberts were also in that side. Uh, and between them only got one wicket. I think the other one might have been a run out. It was uh, a pretty solid <laughs> effort. He did that in 10.3 overs. So I thought it could be him. And there is also a little bit of a sadness about Winston Davis, which is worth bearing in mind. He fell out of a tree, I'm afraid to say, in later life. It's not an advisable thing to do. Um, it happened Why to Duncan. Was he in the tree? Yeah, it, it happened to Duncan Goodhue, and he lost all his hair and became an iconic swimmer and Olympian. But uh, Winston Davis, I'm afraid to say, he was a committed Christian. Uh, was left tetraplegic after suffering spinal injuries, falling from a tree in oh. St. Vincent again. We've had two West Indian Jesus. cricketers, one playing for England, one playing for the West Indies, both from St. Vincent, one dying tragically young in Neil Williams. And um, Winston Davis is still with us, but he's, he's not in a great way. But benefit matches have been have taken place for him. And, and you know, he's, he's in a wheelchair, but uh, he's now living in England, Winston. He was a fine cricketer in, in total played 15 test matches in total average 32.71 but as you say if you've got croft garning garner marshall holding roberts knocking about his test career was somewhat limited he did play 181 first class matches he got 608 wickets which isn't bad at an average of 28 so i thought it could be winston davis it really could but what i want to throw into the mix because it's been quite thematic today hasn't it we've had st vincent bowlers mm-hmm. And we've had a lot of leg spinners. And I just wonder if it might be a bowler that 
was one of another classic breed of England bowlers that were fantastic in domestic cricket and were entirely mistrusted by selectors. And this chap you may not know much about, called Tommy Greenoff. He was born in 1931. He made most of his career in the 50s and early 60s. He represented Lancashire during the 50s. He was a leggy with a very high action. He did play some test cricket. He played four test matches for England in 1959 and 1960. His problem was he couldn't bat. So he only scored four runs in those matches. And England were desperately keen to play attritional cricket. And they did not in any way trust you know anybody who did something as as silly as you know do leg spin give the ball air yeah, oh yeah 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 yeah. i mean that, that's absolutely you know out of the question uh but look he was yeah. so good that colin bateman commi- uh, commented it was amazing that tommy greenoff played test cricket at all as a young player with lancashire he took a job in a cotton mill during the winter and fell from a gantry both ankles were badly broken and his feet ended up different sizes I know. Jesus. I know. You may well be wondering where all this is in relation to 751. But it's because he took 751 first-class wickets at an average of 22.37. He took, by the way, he took 16 wickets in his test career in four matches at 22. Uh, He died in 2009 at the age of 77. Uh, He was a legend in the Lancashire leagues. He was a legend in Lancashire, but he was not a legend enough for our selectors because he did fancy dannery with his flighted leggy filth and his mist-sized feet (laughs) and his terrifically good bowling average. None of that was good enough for England in the 1950s and 60s. I've always said, Daniel, you can't trust a man with one foot bigger than the other. (laughs) Actually, which direction they're going in. They almost certainly said that. It would would have been something as ridiculous as that, wouldn't it? But Tommy Greenoff is my man. This this Flash Harry with his googlies and (laughs) turning the ball the other way. (laughs) I know. I mean, this is the country that didn't let Titch Freeman play more than about 20 games, Mm. even though he took 3,000 first-class wickets. I I apologise unreservedly on behalf of all Englishmen. Particularly, particularly when you look at what he actually did. So he played four games, took four wickets per test at an average of twenty-two, and they said, "Nah, nah, nah, no, none of that." Yeah, go, go, go of back, that. go back, back to the Lancashire your, leagues go, go with back. Peter Sleep. Exactly. Go, go back, go back to play county cricket, and uh, and we'll have a look. Oh, what? Are you still tearing up trees and averaging twenty-two? <laughs> nah, <laughs> we don't like your feet. <laughs> <laughs> So there you go, Tommy Greenoff. I don't suppose uh, I don't suppose you've had him on on story time before. So I thought no, I'd, I'd no. give you a little uh, a little look at him. There we go. I've, I'd never heard of Tommy Greenoff, but uh, we'll add him to our interesting leg spinners list. Uh, that is our suggestion for you, Ben Wilgo. That's the end of our new numbers. If you'd like to send us a number, patreon.com slash the final word. By doing that, you can help us keep making the show um, and you can be part of the show yourself. A handful of confirmations to look at. James Harding with his $4.64. It was indeed Damian Martin's batting average. Uh, he said, thanks for chatting in depth on Marto, a massively underrated part of the dream team. That backfoot cover drive made me love the Western Warriors back in the day. Uh, I'll change my pledge and look forward to hearing it in several months' time. Yeah, it is taking a while for the, the, the edited pledges to come through, but bear with us, they will. Uh, Nikhil Venkatesh said his $6.14 was indeed Ole Mortensen's career best figures of 6 for 14 
correct with Mortensen, didn't know he became a teacher. Oh, the smile came over your face when I mentioned oh, Mortensen, Daniel. Uh, or Stan, as he was affectionately known, wasn't he? Uh, because I think, wasn't didn't Stan Mortensen play football and so he was going to give the nickname mm. Stan, something like that. And uh, yeah, the, the, the great Dane, he was a, a large part of my childhood watching those games mm. on the Sunday League that Neil Williams didn't play in initially because of his faith. Mm. Yeah, so a lot of Ollie Mortensen <laughs> back in the day. Uh, Tony W's $3.80 was indeed Matthew Hayden's uh, top score. He says, thanks for the shout-out. It was too obvious, the number, except I was living in the USA at the time where Crick Info kept me going, but it was, otherwise it was hard to stay in touch with the latest cricket news. Tony, there is no such thing as too obvious. It's not about fooling us. It's about finding a good story. And Uzair Khan, with his uh, $1.42 that ended up being the wrong number, he, he says, you got my nerd pledge right... It was Miss Barrelhark and his chase of an elusive ODI ton. I made an embarrassing mistake combining two stats together, uh, making it 142 when it should have been 0.42, as in 42 half centuries, or $1.49, 149 innings of getting so close but so far. And Daniel, I'm pleased to tell you that Uzair Khan came and picked us up at the hotel in Lahore, Adam and I, and took us out to a lovely dinner um, and chatted to us about cricket all night and and the, the 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 cultural habit in pakistan when you have guests is that you, it's impossible to pay for anything like nobody will let you pay for anything and we'd we'd been having different dinners with people and we'd been trying in vain to be able to contribute something at some point somehow and so uzair spent some time in australia and 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 adam looked him in the eye at the end of the dinner and said okay can we you know how we do things can we please contribute in some way to this dinner and uzair just stared him down cold (laughs) and said not a chance (laughs) it was a beautiful thing (laughs) <laughs> oh, I'd love to meet you, Zay. With a bit of luck, I say it. We will take a bit of luck, but England are touring Pakistan later this year, so um, mm-hmm. I might get selected for that tour. I'd love to meet him. Yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd, uh, well, um, and, and he can. I'm very happy to take any any of his um, his marvelous hospitality <laughs> because all I've heard about from you and Colo and Mel Farrell and Izzy Westbury is that the hospitality is beyond reproach and almost beyond compare. Mm-hmm. And the food is fantastic, and, the, and you all had the time of your lives by the sounds of it. Yeah, we we had uh, we had an absolute ball. So I will look forward to going back. I think Uzair might be back in Melbourne by then. He sees sort of between the two, the two places. But we we were there at the right time. Uh, so thank you to everybody who has contributed to the show. Uh, thank you very much to Daniel Norcross for taking time out of his busy schedule of dice cricket to spend some time <laughs> with us today. Any last wishes for uh, for those listening in before we wrap up? Well, I wish all of you in Australia the best of luck as you now move into autumn and winter. Um, it's always this dance that we do where we take over the baton of the seasons and uh, yours is now over and I genuinely do appreciate how awkward that can be. So make sure you enjoy Aussie rules and, and what have you. Stay safe amidst whatever situations may suddenly hurl themselves at you. And for those listeners who are in the United Kingdom, come and say hello. I'm going to be at cricket matches from pretty much the beginning or middle of next week as our county championship season starts. You won't be able to keep me away from a cricket ground. I will be obviously wearing four layers of clothing and a huge uh, woolly hat, which should should make me quite difficult to see because it'll be like everybody else. But... Pop over, say hello, let's have a coffee. Uh, let's, let's have a warming drink 
and uh, and reminisce about happy times. <laughs> uh, you're just reminding me of that that horrific, you know, those those sort of automatic coffee machines they have with the different variations of of coffees. Yes, you can press the button and they, yeah, the the one that I think it was at Trent Bridge where one of one of the options was Bovril and another one was tomato soup. Yes, <laughs> they all come out of the same. They all come out of the same nozzle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, if you don't know what Bovril is, it's best it's best you stay that way. <laughs> uh, uh, this this has been the final word story time. It's on the Bad Producer podcast uh, label, and thank you to uh, Dave Collins who edits the show week in and week out. We'll be back with the weekly show in the middle of the week, Wednesday or so, uh, and then story time the weekend after that. That's it. Catch you next time. Bye. I had to go about it.